We are back for another week in the wonderful world of SAS on Sasta with me, Harry Stebbings, at hstebbings1996 with two Bs on Instagram, and it'd be great to see you there. But to the show today, and I'm very excited for this one, I've been a fan of this product for a while, and so I'm thrilled to welcome Jale Razai, founder and CEO at Mutiny, the startup that allows you to personalize your website for each and every visitor. Jale is raised from some of the best in the early stage business with Mutiny, including the likes of Y Combinator, Uncork, and Cowboy on the fun side, and then Mathilde at front, Henrique at Brex, and Shannon. Shanlin Marat Zola on the operator side. Prior to founding Mutiny, Chalet spent an incredible four years at Gusto, seeing their hypergrowth firsthand as one of the first 10 employees. And if that wasn't enough, Chalet has also enjoyed advisory roles at both Google and Y Combinator. And I do also want to say a huge thank you to both Layla Sturdy at Capital G and Andy McLaughlin at Uncork for some fantastic question suggestions today. So appreciate that. But before we dive into the show today, you have to check out Cordoba. Cordoba is the leading AI writing assistant used by companies like Intuit and Twitter to keep content on brand. These days, literally everyone with a company writes content. And because of this, it's hard for everyone to stay aligned and maintain consistency. With Cordoba, you can customize writing guidelines to your unique brand and get everyone at your company to write with the same style, terminology, and brand voice whenever and wherever they are writing content. For Sasta listeners, Cordoba is providing a 25% discount off the first year for their starter plan. You can sign up for a free trial and get this offer by visiting cordoba.com forward slash Sasta that's Cordoba with a Q. Writing is one way of attracting new customers, but another way is to increase conversion and to collect and display reviews from your past customers. That's where Reviews.io comes in. Reviews.io not only collects reviews from your happy customers, but is also able to help you publish these reviews on Google and on your social media platform of choice. Reviews.io is a fully API-driven solution that can be fully customized around your company requirements. Reviews.io is packed full of useful features, but one that I found the most useful is that they're able to tell me who my most powerful brand advocates are via the Reviews.io dashboard. Reviews.io is used by over 5,000 companies including leaders of industry like Brex, Opendoor and Carfax and as a special offer for Sasta listeners Reviews.io is giving one month free, no risk to all listeners just use the promo code HARRY that's H-A-R-R-Y but now we've acquired those customers, that's just the beginning and that's why you need to try Zoho CRM, catering to businesses of all sizes, guaranteeing shorter sales cycles and higher customer retention rates Who does not love that? Plus, the software gives you complete visibility and control over your customer's life cycle and equips you to connect with your customers across every channel. It also offers integrations with over 300 of the most popular apps on the market. While change is inevitable, it can be comfortable with Zoho CRM. Sign up with Zoho CRM in two easy steps. First, visit zohocrm.com forward slash Sasta and then hit the Get Started button. It's as simple as it sounds. Start your free trial by clicking the button on the same page. You'll also be happy to know that Zoho CRM offers a version that's completely free. Again, sign up with Zoho, the world's favorite CRM at zohocrm.com forward slash Sasta. But that is quite enough of these dulcet British tones. And so now I'm very excited to hand over to Jale Rezai, founder and CEO at Mutiny. Good. That's perfect. Okay. I think we're warmed up. Jale, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. I've heard so many good things, both from Tom at Gusto and from Layla at Capital G. So thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Harry. Not at all, but I do want to kick off with a little bit on you. So tell me, how did you make your way into the wonderful world of SaaS to start, but then also come to found Mutiny most recently? Yeah, so I found Gusto actually through Tomer, which is amazing that you recently had a chat with him as well. He was classmates with me at Stanford. He was on the computer 
science side, I was getting an MBA and we were in an entrepreneurship class that kind of mixed the students from different backgrounds. And so him and I met there. And when Zen, it was called Zen Payroll at the time, they had about maybe eight or nine or so employees and they were looking to expand the team. He got a recommendation from someone to chat with me. And so him and I met at a coffee shop in Soma. And then I ended up meeting with Josh. I think my first response was, why would I want to work at a payroll company? This is crazy. And then I met them and I was like, wow, this is so much more than a payroll company. I love these people. I love their vision and ended up joining the team at that very early seed stage. And many adventures later, then left after about four years, about 500 employees to basically start Mutiny. I absolutely love it. And I love that start in the coffee shop in Soma with Toma. I do want to ask it because you saw such incredible times of scaling and hyper growth with them. What were your biggest takeaways from that experience? Like, yes, how did it impact your mindset of how you run Mutiny today? I think the biggest takeaways for me were around culture and how do you specifically build a culture where you attract the most amazing talent and create an environment where they love coming to work every day. And for me, there's probably like three things in particular around that that I very much adopted at Mutiny. The first one was because I was there from the early days when we were in this like loft in Soma that would always get overheated right around 3 p.m. You know, from those days when there was just very few of us all the way to when it was a very large company, I got to really internalize the impact of early decisions on the company's DNA. So I could look back at 400, 500 employees and say, we have a particularly analytical approach when it comes to problem solving because of XYZ hire or because of these things that we implemented when we were very early. And there's good and bad that comes with that. And so when I started Mutiny, I was very thoughtful about what type of company did I want to create? The first thing that I wrote was this medium post on the values for the company. And at the time, my co-founder and I hadn't even you know finalized the plans to work together. And I really thought about what that means for me. What were the values that I wanted to be similar to Gusto? What were the values that were going to be different and more unique to me? And I've kind of made every decision with those things in mind. The second thing that I learned there about the culture was just how to help people scale. I think watching what hypergrowth does and how people evolve in that environment was a once in a lifetime experience. And I learned a lot about how to scale and nurture talent, including myself. And so leveraging external mentors, bringing in executive coaches very early on, doing monthly reflections to make sure that we're constantly looking back at what happened the month before and what's coming ahead and how do we want to adapt and adjust and setting expectations well with people and kind of like investing in that growth was probably the second biggest takeaway. And then finally, this last one, you know, I learned from Josh, which is all of the small tweaks and care that you need in order to like build a great culture. It just takes so much commitment early on. I remember I joined Zen Payroll. This was like my second week or something. And I was just sitting in the kitchen doing some work and Josh walked by and there was some water on the ground and he was like in the middle of something, but he just stopped, grabbed a paper towel, cleaned it, threw it away and then left. And it's such a small example, but it gives you the sense of like, if you have this culture of we want to take care of our office as like our home and there isn't someone cleaning up after us and we have this like humble existence as a team, you know, it's small moments like that, that you watch and absorb that really kind of make the culture come alive 
alive. And, you know, I think as we grew, we had to scale a lot of our processes and things to maintain that culture. And, you know, today, like at Mutiny, we have a value that work should feel like play. And so we cook dinner together every Wednesday. We have a chore bot on Slack, you know, so that everyone can chip in. We have these like counter corporate mugs. There's just like a lot of stuff that we do that creates and builds the type of company that we want to create. And I think to kind of wrap it up, like a lot of seed stage companies view things as, you know, I'm so busy. We're trying to get to product market fit. We're trying to build a company. So first I'm going to build a product and a company. And then once we get big, then I'll build a culture. And I think that that's just like such a mistake. Like culture is very much built at that seed stage. And I feel really grateful that I got to see that at Gusto and can now take those lessons to mutiny. I love that kind of work feeling and fun and really cool to hear about the dinners. I do have to ask, and I expected to go off schedule, but as always, my mind takes me sooner than I thought off schedule. You mentioned that in growth. <laughs> the hardest thing for me always is you have a decision where you have to promote someone or hire someone external. How do you think about that decision and how do you approach it when you have to bring in someone external and manage the expectations of that existing employee who maybe didn't get the role they wanted? It really is one where it takes practice to get it right. I think for me, the biggest thing around scaling is first, I make it really clear to my team that I always prefer to promote from within. And I really live that and they see how much we invest in every individual here. So they have clear goals. We are very direct with feedback about what's working, what's not working. And I don't really hesitate to try to invest either through classes or pairing them with mentors. And so I think they really feel that when we say like we really want to promote from within and grow our talent, that that is something that we're committed to. At the same time, I try to have a really transparent conversation about what is the next job that they are trying to grow into and what are the expectations for that job and how do they compare relative to that. And a lot of times when people come in to the company, the bigger role hasn't actually been created. So maybe you need to hire like a VP level person or the head of a department, but initially you don't necessarily need that role. And so we try to be really transparent about, hey, you know, you're joining. We see a lot of potential and opportunity in you to scale with the company. That role hasn't necessarily been created or we don't need that role today. But when we do, here's what's expected in that role. And these are the metrics. And we very much want to groom you and enable you to grow into that role. But at the same time, just keep in mind that it's not necessarily easy to scale exponentially you know, your own skill set with that. What I can't do is change what the job is because I like somebody. My responsibility to the company is to hire the best person for a particular role. But what I can do is always be transparent about what's needed, where you're at, and try to invest to the extent possible to get the person there. And when it's not possible, then just be transparent about that. So I think expectation setting is huge. And I think having seen how difficult it is for people to scale, that has also made me very wise to not overpromise and to be extremely thoughtful early on. You know, I think at Gusto, it was like me and there weren't really that many people who kind of made that leap as the company scaled. So the more likely or not, the scopes and the roles are going to change. And at the end of the day, it's about building an environment where the person has the right mix of what they know and where they're being challenged such that they can operate in this like happy, awesome flow state and continue to grow versus be so overwhelmed by the role where they're just like terrified 
terrified every day. <laughs> and, and, and so, yeah, it's a lot of honest and thoughtful conversations. There isn't sort of a silver bullet. You mentioned that a particular role, and I, I do want to kind of double click, so to speak, on a particular role, being kind of SaaS marketing, so to speak. Because when we spoke before, you said the biggest problem in SaaS marketing is the problem no one is working on. I mean, what a cliffhanger, I have to say. But uh, what is the biggest problem in SaaS marketing? And second, like, why is no one working on it? You know, I think in B2B, one of the biggest things that we have known for decades is that B2B products are sold really differently depending on who the buyer is. And we have leveraged salespeople for decades to help understand the customer, their unique needs, and then adapt the use case and the feature set and the buying process to those needs. And without doing this, it's actually extremely difficult to be effective at selling B2B products. And in the past five years, the interesting thing has been that because of SaaS, because of digital online platforms, because of change in the way consumers and people buy within businesses, like everyone has a credit card and we've shifted from like IT and procurement to a lot more buyers within the companies, we now see like about two thirds of customer interactions are happening online as opposed to offline. And I would argue for, this is kind of like a official stat across B2B, but I would argue for SaaS companies, it's probably much more closer to like 90%, 95% of touch points are happening online, many that we probably can't even track. And what's crazy is that despite this shift from human and sales to online, nothing about our online presence has shifted to adapt to that particular customer. We're still leveraging more or less generic ads, generic websites, generic emails. And I don't know if you've been to a B2B website recently, but often when you go, you don't even understand what they're saying because they're trying to combine messages for multiple audiences, right? So let's say they sell a customer data platform and one group, you know, large enterprises buy the product because they want more accurate data and small companies buy it because they want something that's easier to implement. And there's other industries and use cases for different reasons. And like the only way to combine all of this is to come up with some confusing message, like redefining data platforms, enterprise. And you're like, what? <laughs> what is this product? You know, and any customer that doesn't know you, that doesn't have history, that hasn't heard about you, which is where most of your growth is going to come from, is going to look at that, say WTF and close their browser. And we see this in 99% of drop-offs in B2B funnels and certainly the website is one of the biggest places where this happens. And so, you know, I think like we sit and we optimize every little ad copy and we pay Google and Facebook millions of dollars to go acquire customers. But then once we get that customer and they come and actually engage with us, instead of putting our best, most relevant foot forward, we give everybody the same experience. And it's kind of like having a salesperson close his ears and shout from a script. Like that's what our marketing materials are doing. And of course, it's not effective. And of course, we lose a ton of potential customers in that process. So this is something that I very much learned as I went from VMware, where I saw the personalization that we did with our sales team, and then tried to do that online at Gusto and saw how difficult it was. And you know, we came up with a lot of manual processes and things to be able to personalize our buying experience and got to see how effective it was whenever we were able to pull it off. And so I'm a big believer that 
we really have to change the way we think about B2B marketing now that more and more interactions with customers are shifting online. We have to stop chasing traffic and we have to start thinking about optimizing and personalizing the experience for that traffic that we pay so much for, especially if we don't want our cost of acquisition to increase 50 to 100% every year. Totally, which we definitely don't from this point <laughs> on. I mean, my word, it terrifies me to see the cash we're seeing today. But anyway, I do want to ask, because it seems like a highly scalable solution to account-based marketing, which is kind of a glossy phrasing that actually always quite frustrates me because there's nothing new about account-based marketing and it's really existed for years and years. Do you think my assessment of like current accounts-based marketing is fair and right? I mean, ABM is a bit of a buzzword, but it's also an approach to marketing that works. And, you know, maybe I would have not been as much of a believer, but we use ABM at Mutiny. That's how we acquire our customers and it works beautifully. And I think the best way to think about ABM and really anything in marketing is to kind of simplify it to what is it really? And to me, ABM is just about, you know, your customer profile, your average deal sizes are large enough where you can actually just create a small list of folks that fit that profile. And then sales and marketing are coming together to say, how can we nurture and close these customers? And so the easiest way to understand ABM is if you had to bring in like, let's say like 500K in revenue, like some small amount, and you hired a well-rounded marketer and a sales rep, and you put the two of them in a room and you said, figure out how to get this revenue, they would probably kind of sit and say, okay, well, who do we think would be a good fit? And maybe the salesperson would call them and email them and try to get intros to the account while the marketing person would be like, well, let's host a dinner for them, or maybe let's send them a piece of mail, right? And together, they would figure out how to close those customers and hit that revenue target. And I think what's become ABM is just the idea of how can you scale that and how can you make that work with many more sales people and many more marketers and a lot more technology to kind of facilitate that scaling. Totally get you there. I do have to ask, you mentioned your usage of ABM. Because how do you strategically use ABM to acquire customers today with Mutiny? How do you think about that kind of process and workflow? Well, when I switched from Gusto to Mutiny and discovered that we could do ABM at Mutiny, I was like a kid in a candy store because with Gusto, an average deal size of $500, it's extremely challenging to acquire customers and you don't know who your customers are. And so you have to, uh, and if you've heard the term of net fishing, right? Like you're going out there and you're bidding on search terms, you're optimizing audiences, and you're trying to hit the largest volume of people that you think have potential to buy. And you have to be extremely thoughtful about how much time and effort you spend on on them because your deal size is so low that you can't like really nurture and grow the relationship, right? It's much more transactional. You're basically trying to find out, are you in market or not? And if they're not, you want to exit from paying to get in front of that user as fast as possible because otherwise the costs aren't going to work out. And I joined Gusto at the time. I think our average deal size was $450. It's obviously gone up quite a bit with the addition of new product lines. But nonetheless, it's still very much an inbound driven process. And then when I got to Mutiny, our average deal sizes are higher. We can do ABM. And it was awesome. Like the fact that we could sit there and say, well, who do we think would be a great fit? And who are the first like thousand or 500 companies that we want to go after? And, you know, actually, you know, we can even get intros into the first 50. You know, it was amazing because we know exactly who we are talking to and we can create a very tailored experience for them. So we can show them ads um, 
to specifically like those departments within those companies. We can send them tailored emails. We can spend time and effort on personalizing that. We actually use our own products. So, you know, for those of you who don't know what Mutiny does, like we help personalize the buying experience for B2B companies. And a lot of that is done on an inbound basis, but we also have an outbound ABM product where we can create one-on-one personalized pages. And so we actually create personalized pages for everyone in our target account. And we send that to them, which basically is this like custom intro based on, you know, hey, Joe, like based on your role, based on what you're doing, based on the advertising platforms you use, et cetera, and the number of salespeople you have, like, here's what we think you're struggling with and here's how we can help you. And we have an extremely high cold outreach to demo. It's about 8% that people book because we get to be so tailored. And that's not uncommon in really effective ABM programs. Like, you know, you can also do events and direct mail and things like that, that can get you really high conversion rates. So I love ABM because I just think it's so much easier than inbound. Uh, Listen, I totally agree with you. And I so much prefer, as I think it's termed uh, fishing with a spear versus a net. I do want to ask, you mentioned the conversion rate from initial outreach to demo there. And I'm always slightly challenged actually when it comes to determining marketing success. I think that's a huge problem we have in marketing today. I always think that it should be tied to a number directly related to revenue, but it's not always that easy and simple. So first, like, would you agree with me in terms of the challenge of determining marketing success? And how do you internally think about, hey, what are the metrics I use to determine the success of my marketing today? I think it first starts with culture. I think you have to kind of constantly reinforce that everyone and every department is here to do what's best for the company. And that while we work on different pieces of the puzzle, at the end of the day, we're all trying to hit this revenue target. And I think in the early days, it's a lot easier because you don't really have to worry about controlling people with metrics or people having bad behaviors and having just that kind of cultural view that we're all held accountable, we're all honest and reflective, and we all want the same thing. It just makes it all easier. And then as the company grows, then you have to think more about how are you delegating responsibility in the different units. So for me, revenue is absolutely the metric that you should be looking at. If you have an inbound funnel, I can't even begin to describe how much control marketing has over whether leads convert to customers or not. And if they are not judged on revenue, it's almost impossible to scale your CAC and do everything cost effectively while you're in hyper growth. So we were very revenue focused. However, I will say that I saw this a lot at Gusto. As we expanded our sales team and the company got bigger, having everybody just own revenue was a little bit dissatisfying because people wanted to know like, okay, sure, we're all working towards revenue, but is there a metric that marketing owns? And is there a metric that sales own? And is there a metric that product owns? Because all three of us contribute to ultimately getting the revenue. And I think at first I was really against that because I thought that it would hurt us. But I ultimately kind of came around to this idea that it would be better if each department also had a metric that they affected more than anybody else because it would help with like accountability and handoffs and things like that. And so for sales and marketing, I would say for marketing in particular, that metric typically ends up being something like pipelines. So a sales accepted lead 
need because you can still generate a lot of discovery calls that the person doesn't end up showing up. Like 50% of people or something can miss it. And so you kind of want to get to a little bit deeper in the funnel where the sales team can accept that lead. If you can't get that far into the funnel, another way to set a really good metric is to find a point in the funnel where conversion rate from that point is very consistent. And that's another like good way for marketing. So for example, we used a step in our funnel, which was when the person has added their bank account. It was a leading indicator, but the conversion rate from that step tended to be like very consistent down funnel. And so, you know, that's another good way to set a metric to kind of separate a little bit the top of funnel activity from that marketing does from the more bottom of the funnel activity that sales does. But, you know, at the end of the day, the reason I emphasize culture is important is that at the end of the day, like I want a marketing team that sees an opportunity down funnel and says, you know what, like we can go and build out these different things and we can increase our conversion rate from sales accepted to close by 40%. And I want the kind of team that thinks in that way, that thinks full funnel and that, you know, we're always kind of looking at projects very holistically. And that's just more like a matter of leadership and the relationship between the marketing leader and the sales leader and what you emphasize and role model like every day for your team. I love that element in terms of the split metrics there and kind of how that drives accountability. I do want to move that into my favorite element of any episode being the quick fire round. So I say a short statement and then you hit me with your immediate thoughts in about 60 seconds or less. Are you ready to rock and roll? Yes. Okay. So hiring is always incredibly hard, but what's the hardest role to hire for today? And why do you think that is? I honestly think it's the CMO or the head of acquisition. If you think about a marketing function, every single subgroup within marketing is totally different. You have right brain people, left brain people, you have brand, you have PR, you have analytics, acquisition, operations. Whereas if you look at other departments like product or sales, et cetera, there's a lot more homogeneity in the different subgroups and the skill sets required. And so I just think it's really hard to find a leader that can really cohesively bring all of these things together. It's an extremely difficult job and there are very few people that fit that profile. Tell me a moment in your life that's maybe served as an inflection point and changed the way you think. After Gusto, I took a sabbatical before starting Mutiny. I traveled alone all over the world. I kind of lived in Italy for a month or two and it was just so amazing to kind of reconnect with myself and think about where I was at and what I wanted and start the next chapter of my life kind of from that point of clarity. Totally. And living in Italy is always a wonderful thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. quality- it helps that I was in the city of Barolo for some period of time, which has the most incredible red wine in the world. Oh, I'm a sucker for red wine and really sloppy cheese. <laughs> One of the reasons I'm still single, I'm sure. But um, tell me, <laughs> quality or quantity of logos in the early days? What do you think? The quality, definitely. Why do you think that is over quantity when that drives confidence in sales teams, bluntly real estate of badges on websites? Why quality over quantity? Because I think in the early days, you need to build a flywheel and it's really hard to kind of get from this like static friction to kinetic friction. And, you know, customers don't care if you have a certain amount of revenue. They care about who is using it and do they trust that person. And so doing whatever you can to get logos that end up or customers that end up convincing other customers to take a second look at you is critical. And then that will get you more logos that other people respect and you kind of keep growing. This is what we did at Mutiny. 
We were very focused on fast growing companies. So like Brex and Carta and Segment and Trip Actions and these types of folks and Amplitude. And I can't stress how valuable that has been for us because once Amplitude started working with us, then, you know, Segment's like, well, you know, we really respect Amplitude. So maybe we would consider it once Segment starts working with us and then now Carta is interested and just sort of keeps expanding from there. What's the hardest element of your role with Mutiny today, do you think? Wearing so many different hats. Why and which do you think is most challenging to wear? I try to operate in a really prioritized way. And so I would say, especially for a seed stage company, we spend a lot of time thinking about what are we trying to achieve in three months from now, in 12 months from now. And then we set OKRs for every quarter. We set OKRs every week in the beginning of the week. And then we reflect on what worked, what didn't work, and what's the most important thing for the company. So always trying my hardest to be extremely prioritized on a day-by-day and week-by-week basis. That said, I think as an early stage founder, part of the job is to figure out how to balance so many different things at the same time. I remember when I started in YC, one of the opening speeches from Michael Seibel, which was a lesson from Paul Graham, was you have to figure out how to be a more formidable version of yourself. And that's just the job. And then when it came to, like, for example, we were approaching Demo Day, they were like, hey, a lot of you have asked, we have to work with customers and keep them happy while we still have to like figure out this fundraising and demo date. What can we do? Can we do one or the other? And they're like, no, you have to do both. And that's just the job. And and I think that's one of the hard parts at the seed stage because you have very few people in the company. It actually hurts you if you have too many people. So you want to keep it really lean. And it's this constant balancing of like figuring out how to prioritize your time and how to simultaneously wear multiple important hats that you can't really outsource. And then the final one, what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning beginning of your time founding Mutiny? Yeah, I wish I knew this from the beginning of my career, which is like at the end of the day, like no one really knows what they're doing. (laughs) And, you know, everyone's just figuring it out on the fly. So just go on with your bad self and like keep your edge sharp and don't dilute your ideas and your creative thoughts. I totally agree with you. I wish I'd known that when uh, I started too. Listen, I so enjoyed this. As I said, I had so many good things, especially from Layla and Thomas. So thank you so much for joining me, Stan. I can't wait to see the exciting times ahead for Mutiny. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. This was fun. Wow, I absolutely loved having Jale on the show there. And if you'd like to see more from her and Mutiny, you can find them on Twitter. Likewise, it'd be great to welcome you behind the scenes here on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. I always love to see you there. But before we leave you today, you have to check out Cordoba. Cordoba is the leading AI writing assistant used by companies like Intuit and Twitter to keep content on brand. These days, literally everyone with a company writes content. And because of this, it's hard for everyone to stay aligned and maintain consistency. With Cordoba, you can customize writing guidelines to your unique brand and get everyone at your company to write with the same style, terminology, and brand voice whenever and wherever they are writing content. For SASTA listeners, Cordoba is providing a 25% discount off the first year for their starter plan. You can sign up for a free trial and get this offer by visiting cordoba.com forward slash SASTA. That's Cordoba with a Q. Writing is one way of attracting new customers, but another way is to increase conversion and to collect and display reviews from your past customers. That's where reviews.io comes in. Review 
Reviews.io not only collects reviews from your happy customers, but is also able to help you publish these reviews on Google and on your social media platform of choice. Reviews.io is a fully API-driven solution that can be fully customized around your company requirements. Reviews.io is packed full of useful features, but one that I found the most useful is that they're able to tell me who my most powerful brand advocates are via the Reviews.io dashboard. Reviews.io is used by over 5,000 companies, including leaders of industry like Brex, Open Door, and Carfax. And as a special offer for SaaS to listeners, Reviews.io is giving one month free, no risk to all listeners. Just use the promo code HARRY, that's H-A-R-R-Y. But now we've acquired those customers, that's just the beginning. And that's why you need to try Zoho CRM, catering to businesses of all sizes, guaranteeing shorter sales cycles and higher customer retention rates. Who does not love that? Plus, the software gives you complete visibility and control over your customer's life cycle and equips you to connect with your customers across every channel. It also offers integrations with over 300 of the most popular apps on the market. While change is inevitable, it can be comfortable with Zoho CRM. Sign up with Zoho CRM in two easy steps. First, visit zohocrm.com forward slash Sasta and then hit the get started button. It's as simple as it sounds. Start your free trial by clicking the button on the same page. You'll also be happy to know that Zoho CRM offers a version that's completely free. Again, sign up with Zoho, the world's favorite CRM, at zohocrm.com forward slash Sasta. As always, I so appreciate all your support and I can't wait to bring you another fantastic episode next week.